Good morning to all of you. We're, we're beginning this week, a five, uh, the beginning of a five-week series, one week off in the middle of it, but a five-week series on, on Galatians. I didn't plan this. Uh, it's one of those good providences of the Lord. Now, but for those of you who may be in the daily office, um, the readings in the New Testament happen to be Galatians right now, so that's a, a happy providence. Um, spending time with Paul is like, for me, uh, going back to an old friend in some ways. I, I tend to spend most of my time these days in the Old Testament, um, but going back to Paul is kind of like going back to a, to a first love. And I'm, I'm reminded in this book of Galatians, which I will encourage you over these next uh, five, six weeks, it's, it happens to be during our season of Lent, um, to maybe spend some time reading through uh, Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians to, to reflect and to think on it. It's the kind of book that continues to exert a pressure on us. It's one of the points I want to bring up today. Um, but Paul, Paul's intense. I don't know how else to say it. Um, I, I've been reading, and some of you have heard me say this more than once, I've been reading a biography on, on Calvin by a, a scholar named Bruce Gordon. And I'm reminded, as much as I like Calvin and, and his theology, and I, I, I go to that well more often than not, frankly, um, but Calvin was a kind of intense guy as well. Um, you know, I don't know if Calvin would be the guy that I'm, you know, I want to go hang out with at the pub. Um, you know, he, he's a little bit of a, uh, he struggled with hemorrhoids, someone can understand this. Um, but he, uh, you know, but he, he was a, he was a kind of a difficult guy. Whereas Luther, you know, he could be um, difficult as well, but I wouldn't mind going to a party with Luther. I think that might be a fun evening. I, I my wife and I had the privilege of seeing um, Luther's house in, in Wittenberg last year, and on display is, is Luther's prized beer mug. I mean, there it is. Um, and, and his wife was very well known for her ability to make beer. She had a lot in common with our own. Um, but uh, anyhow, Paul's well. Paul was an intense, an intense person because something had seized him. And few letters, I think, allow us into the kind of ethos and pathos of Paul like Galatians does. We get to see Paul unplugged. Um, it's not always nice and linear. It's not always neat and clean. But it is something profound and powerful because the gospel had seized on him and, uh, and he had been transformed by it. Um, so I want to read to you the first few verses of Galatians, the first ten and then give a little bit of an overview of where we're going to go. So here's Paul out of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. Now I'm going to read this slowly and kind of emphasize what I think are key points here. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, that area in Asia Minor, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, plug that away somewhere, to deliver us from the pre present evil age, plug that away too, according to the will of our God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Paul's greeting. Hello, how are you? This is who I am. This is who you are. Um, this is the kind of content of what this whole thing is about, the gospel. And then it's past all the platitudes. Not that that was platitudinous, but it's past all that into verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
I don't know if you've had these kind of encounters before. Hello, hello, good to see you. And then, boom, you're in the middle of a confrontation. That's what's going on here. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you to, in the grace of Christ. You're turning to another gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even, can you imagine someone saying this? But even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you. That's what, if, if one of the apostles, if an angel happens to show up and they start preaching to you a different gospel than the one that I preached to you, let him be, and I'll give you the term that you maybe have heard before, let him be anathema, accursed. Let's put it in our language. Let him, this is how it really is, go to hell. That's what he's saying. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That, By the way, I didn't repeat the verse. That's verse 8 and verse 9. So he says it twice. If someone says something other than the gospel I'm giving to you, let that person be anathema twice over. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want to talk about four things this morning to give us a kind of entree into Galatians and really into the life and thought of Paul in general. The first thing is this. The nature of Paul's letters, and you all know this who've spent time with Paul, is that they are occasional letters. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, uh, calling them saints and holy ones, by the way. That, that, that should cause us to reflect on what that means. Paul is writing to Galatia and then to Ephesus and to Colossae and to the Thessalonians. He's writing occasional letters that are born out of a particular time in a particular place to a particular people. Now that's agreed upon. We, we assume that that's the case. Um, we view our Bible, frankly, in a way that's different than the Quran. We, we do believe that our Bible is born in time and space. Real human agents were speaking to real human people with real life conflicts, and all of that is assumed to be part of the warp and woof of what it means to engage the Bible. But I think that has been pressed on the interpretive level too far to lose the fact that Paul's occasional letters function beyond the immediacy of their genesis and historical provenance. They have the ability in their canonical status as scripture to do work beyond the particular situation of Galatia or Colossae or Ephesus and the list goes on and on. And this is, by the way, a, a very debated kind of issue within the life of Pauline scholarship, Pauline scholars. Um, the kind of reading that I would be leaning against, and this is you have me this morning, others would disagree and that's fine. But the kind of reading that I would be leaning against when I'm reading Paul is what is referred to as a mirror reading. Uh, J.L. Martin, as a, a scholar from uh, Northeast, has written, to my mind, probably the most important and, and robust commentary on Galatians in the latter part of the 20th century. How's that for a hyperbolic statement? I mean, it's a really important commentary. But J.L. Martin has gone on record saying something like this. We only understand Paul insofar as we understand the opponents to whom which Paul is responding. So in other words, our understanding of the book of Galatians is only going to be as good as our ability to historically reconstruct the world out of which Paul is speaking and the opponents that he's setting himself up over against. 
I'm going to lean against that kind of reading because what that ends up doing is it causes, a, to my mind, a significant interpretive hurdle related to Paul's writings as Scripture. Did Paul have opponents against whom he was speaking? Yes, we assume that. But is our ability to understand Paul's letter only as good as our ability to reconstruct that? I would give a resounding no to that. Why? Because Paul's letters have the ability to do their Holy Spirit work beyond the immediacy of, this, of the situation out of which they arose. And just so you don't think that's me sort of laying on to Paul here, uh, I don't know if you, you remember this, but at the ending of the book of Colossians, Paul says, oh, and by the way, I wrote a letter to the Laodiceans. A lot of scholars think that that's probably the book of Ephesians. I mean, there's some debate there, but let's just for argument's sake say it's Ephesians. So Paul says, by the way, I wrote the book of Ephesians. Why don't you swap this letter with them, the one to the Colossians, and the one that I sent them, you all get a hold of that and read it too. In other words, Paul himself knew that his words that were spoken to particular situations had the ability to move, had the ability to, to transcend their particularity and speak a gospel word beyond that immediate situation. And by the way, that is a claim that is, that's rooted in our understanding of what the Bible is as canon. It's a living word. It's dynamic. We don't treat the Bible as if its problem is how distant and other it is from us, even though it is all that. The Bible's young, it's fresh, and it's alive because of the, of the conjoining of word and spirit. Paul knew that and, and assumed that. So that's, that's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing, oh, well, and related to that, hold on, reverse. I also, and I, I wouldn't go, you know, to the firing squad on this one, but I also do think that Romans has a principal role in the Pauline collection. In other words, I do think Romans is at the head of the Pauline collection and all of the ancient witnesses to the ordering of Paul's letters, and I think that has interpretive cash value. In other words, Romans shapes the way in which we enter into all the other letters as well. That's my opinion on this. I, again, I could change my mind if you pulled out a gun, but I, but I do think that that's a, an important way to Paul. Right? That's the first thing. The second thing, and I think this is fundamental. It has shifted for me my complete way of understanding the, uh, Paul and his, and his theology. And that is the very important role that eschatology plays for Paul. I just lost half of you, right? I mean, if anything is frightening and weird in the life of the church, it's eschatology, right? I mean, the doctrine of the last times, of the, of the end times. Um, you're turning on the TV station, TBN or whatever it is, about one in the morning. You're going to see things about oil fields in Israel and red heifers. And maybe, maybe you did, this isn't your world. This is the world I come from. Um, or, or, you know, uh, stewardesses reading left behind 30,000 feet. I'm never comfortable with that, but I've seen it. Um, you know, so th th these kind of things, uh, at least if you're like me, I'm like, I'd rather talk about something else, right? Um, you know, the old views of being premillennial, your view on the premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. I tend to be, oh, this is such a bad joke. I tend to be panmillennial. Um, it'll all pan out in the end, right? That's kind of my, my very sophisticated view on this. But for Paul, eschatology is at the heart 
of his understanding of the gospel. I grew up in a world where the eschatology and time charts were very complicated. Did any of you grow up in a world like this? I mean, you have a Jesus comes here, or we go up, and then there's this period of time, and then something happens here, question mark there, another question mark there, and then a thousand years. I mean, I, I, it was so complicated, um, but that was the world. Here was Paul's eschatological chart. You ready? This is about as, as good as it gets. Old age, new age. There it is. Very simple. And for Paul, the new age in Christ's resurrection has dawned on humanity. I want to read this verse to you again, Galatians 1, and maybe you can get a sense of this eschatological feel. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. To deliver us from that present evil age. Can I read you something else from Romans chapter 1? Again, this has shifted the way in which I view this. Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Right? Verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness in the resurrection from the dead. Now, these are verses that have elicited an enormous amount of debate regarding what is actually being claimed by Paul. A kind of critical reading here would be an adoptionist Christology. That is, Jesus was a man, he lived as a man, and then when he died, he was raised, and when he was raised, he became godlike. That's an adoptionist reading on this. I think the classic Reformed and Lutheran reading on this is um, Christological. That is, according to David, that's his human side, he was in the flesh. And according to the resurrection, the divine side, he was um, raised in power. So that you have the humanity of, God, of Christ and the full divinity of Christ on display right there. That's a, that's a, that's a reading that has a noble and long history. But I think the reading that's probably better... It's a reading that recognizes what Paul is saying here is he's making an eschatological claim. Jesus came in the flesh, that is, in the old eon. He entered into our time and space in the world of sin that was laid siege by the alien and hostile powers of sin. He comes into that world. Jesus does. Fully God, fully man. He enters into that world. But when he was raised from the dead... We see the era of the resurrection, the new age, being actualized in the person and work of the Son, vindicated, so that the new age is now upon us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. We are in the age of the resurrection of the dead. I mean, if Paul were to come in and were to have a dialogue with, with us this morning, and we were to want to get our eschatological questions answered, and we were to say, Paul, tell us, when will the age of the resurrection of the dead be? Paul's answer would be, you're in it now. Now is the age of the resurrection. Jesus Christ is alive, the first fruits of the resurrection. I hope this doesn't trouble you, but I'm going to fiddle with a few verses that you may know. Like 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... Most of the trans and I, this sounds so pretentious, so forgive me. But most of the translations say something like, "If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature." 
But it really kind of has a more jolting reading here. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Katakitesis, the new creation. He goes on and he says in a few verses later, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, that it was promised in Isaiah that behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will redeem you and release you. And then Paul says, and now is the day of salvation. What are these claims that Paul is making? The claims that Paul are making in all these portions throughout the entirety of his letters is you are in the age of the new creation now. When you see men and women who are in Christ in the full reality of the gospel, you recognize that you are in the age of the resurrection now. The new creation is upon us. Now is the time. That's significant, I think. Because we tend to think when we hear Paul start talking about flesh and spirit as if he's talking about the black dog and the white dog that are barking in our hearts after one another, right? The white angel and the black angel telling you to do good or do bad. And really, and I think there's parts of that in Paul, frankly, but that's not at the heart of it. At the heart of this flesh spirit idea for Paul is an understanding that we live now in the overlap of the ages. The age of the resurrection, the new creation is on us. We are in that. We're in Christ. It's why Paul can talk in such realistic ways that our citizenship is already in heaven now. We're citizens in another time and another place. Yet at the same time, we live in the world of the flesh, in the overlap of the ages. Scholars, Pauline scholars, have termed the, termed the phrase, we live in the tension of the already and the not yet. We're already in the age of the resurrection, and we're not yet in it as well. And I think it also leans into Luther's notion that we are at the same time righteous and at the same time as sinners. So the eschatological part is significant to my mind. Third thing. You haven't checked out yet, have you? Third thing. Paul will hear of no other gospel. I'm astonished that you were so quick to desert Christ for another gospel. And I think it's actually quite interesting to read this and to realize that Paul doesn't give us a detailed definition of what the content of that gospel is. I think we would expect him to do that, but we don't get a detailed exposition of what the content of the gospel is. And frankly, the word gospel um, raises questions about what does Paul mean here? Paul is a master of what I'll refer to as linguistic jujitsu, right? I mean, he will take terms that are common to the culture, and he will heist those terms. We'll call it borrowed capital. He'll heist those terms, but he will infuse them with content that catches the reader off guard. That's the jujitsu move. I mean, for example, Paul uses the language of reconciliation, to be reconciled. Those within Paul's world, the Greco-Roman world, would have known that term. They would have understood that term. But they would have assumed that the term reconciliation means that those who had offended somebody reconciled the offended party to themselves. So the offended, they, the one who's offended, they get reconciled. But Paul uses it in the complete opposite way, doesn't he? It's not the ones who are the offending parties reconciling themselves, but it's the one who is offended God himself, he's been offended, who moves toward us to redeem us and bring us to himself. It's a similar thing with the gospel. 
mean, yes, the people in Paul's world would have known about the use of the term good news to announce when the leaders within the Roman, uh, the Roman imperial world had conquered in foreign worlds and lands. They would have known that term. That was a good news. It was euangelion. It was gospel. But Paul infuses it with content, with theology, with doctrine that frankly finds its home in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How lovely, how good it is when those who announce good news on the mountains, they're announcing good news, the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God reigns. That's a verse that you might know. But what's stunning within the content, context of Isaiah is that we blink, and in a few verses we're in Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? How has God established his reigning, his kingship, his lordship? He's done it in the surprising way of the suffering of the servant who brings about the forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel content that Paul is talking about. He has come to deliver us from sin and from the present evil age. It's a significant claim Paul is making here that they've moved to another gospel. What's the other gospel? The gospel is, and I'll tap into our sermon this morning, the gospel is Jesus plus something. In other words, that was beautiful imagery this morning we heard with Moses and Elijah, and they're gone. And then Jesus is standing there alone. He's by himself. What was happening, what was troubling Galatia, what was troubling Paul, is that there were teachers who were coming in and saying, there's Jesus alone, and then there's a little bit more that needs to be added. And Paul becomes unplugged at such things. But I want you to notice something. I think this is significant. Paul doesn't become unplugged for reasons of personal pride or the power of my rhetoric has not sort of landed on you or, and the list goes on and on. Paul, Paul really is loath um, to, to establish himself as the source of this because what does he say again and again in this letter? I didn't get this from men. I didn't go and get a schooling on this. This was from the apocalypsis of Christ. It was the revelation of Jesus himself that revealed this gospel content to me. It's the gospel itself that Paul is zealous for. And this is what leaves him uh, unplugged here. It's the gospel. And I think the content of the gospel is Isaiah chapter 52. Sin, the release from sin, the suffering servant, someone dying on our account. And that's, that's key. One final thing, one final thing, and then we'll talk. Paul is passionate about the gospel. And in this letter, I think you've already felt it, um, Paul isn't just having a nice sort of over-the-table you know, conversation at O'Henry's with some coffee. This, this is not what ha is happening here. In fact, Paul's kind of shouting. Um, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Our, our translations, and rightly so, I don't think there's any reason to do something other, but our translations tend to, um, you know, they, they, they tend to attenuate, to make thin the kind of force that's going on here. Later on, Paul is going to get, and we're going to see this together, Paul's going to get in a conversation because these teachers of the law are telling the Galatians that they need to be circumcised as well. You know, you know what Paul says? It's almost as if his pen got away from him. He says, you know, if they're so happy about circumcision, I wish they'd just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Have at it. I mean, that's, 
Let me, let me just put that in perspective for you. That's inspired Bible right there, right, that's going on. Okay? I mean, Paul is unplugged because he is passionate for the gospel. If an angel happens to show up in your church and they start teaching Jesus plus something else, if another apostle shows up and they start teaching you Jesus plus something else, then let that person be anathematized. Let them be damned. This is seized Paul, and it's at the core of his identity. It's what makes him who he is. You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. We sit under the authority of the prophets and the apostles. But I think a legitimate extension for you and for me this morning in hearing the kind of passion that Paul has for the gospel is for us, especially as we move into this season of Lent, to take time and reflect about what place does the gospel have at the core of our being? I mean, how do we fundamentally identify our own selves vis-a-vis the revelation of God by the Spirit in His Son? I mean, for Paul, there is no other point of identification than I'm the one who's been seized by the gospel of Christ. I'm that one. And if something comes in to make that particular message become threatened, Paul will become unchained and unfettered and frankly not bound anymore by conventional moorings. He really doesn't really care about that anymore. He becomes very passionate about the gospel. He is. The early part of the 20th century and We'd have to talk more about this, but I think it's worth reflecting on. J. Gresham Machen, who was a Presbyterian leader in the, in the um, he taught at Princeton Seminary for years, and then he founded Westminster Theological Seminary. J. Gresham Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. It was kind of one of these bombshell books as well. But the basic claim that Machen made was something like this. When you remove the material content of the gospel, that is the reality of sin, the importance of justification and sanctification, the whole soteric event. When you start to remove those things from the life of the church and replace it with whatever, a kind of therapeutic deism or a kind of I need to get in touch with the big guy out there or whatever you want to replace it with, whenever you've done that, we, have not, we are no longer in the realm of Christianity. It's another religion. You can call it what you want to call it, but it's not Christianity anymore. If Paul were in the audience, I think we'd hear Paul say a really loud amen. There's no other gospel. When we start fiddling with the content of the gospel, that is, we're sinners in need of a Savior who's done that work completely on our account and brought us into renewed fellowship with the Father by the work of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. When that stuff begins to get played down or... It becomes a nice mantelpiece, right, that's on the mantle in our houses, kind of like Grandpa's watch. doesn't work very well, don't know what to do with it, but I'm glad we still have it around, right? When it becomes a mantelpiece and it's not at the core of who we are, Paul says, you're no longer in Christian land. It's something else. It's a different religion. But Christianity has at its core the material content of the gospel. That's significant. It's very important. Because there are so many good things that we do in the life of the church. But that has got to flow from the core of the gospel. There's nothing else. That's what gives us our identity. That makes us who we are. Well, I was excited about talking to this you this morning. And I think I just threw a shotgun blast at you. I apologize for that. Um, 
What, what do you want to? What do you want to bat around? Let me just ask you. We're all guilty of this of uh, adding and subtracting. But is it? I, I, it's possible that Christians practice a different religion than Christianity, right? I I I, I, I think. I mean, I think that was at the core of um, of Machen's book. Yeah. But 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 you're asking a larger, I think, sort of personal pious question. And I think you're right. I think our danger, again, because we live in the overlap of the ages, we, we live in the already and the not yet, and we know the reality of the not yet. And we don't have to work real hard at that. And that means that the life of repentance, right, which is good news, the life of turning is a gift to us that's not a one-off thing. I mean, this was at the heart of Luther's understanding of the gospel, that we are turned by God's grace to a life of repentance, a life of turning. And frankly, it's one of the key reasons why we need one another along the way and why we need to be in church. I'm talking to the choir because you're all here. But you happen to do that liturgy this morning. Me too. And guess what that liturgy helped me think about this morning as we work through that on the way to the Eucharist? Repenting again toward the gospel. Right. So I think repentance isn't just a one-off thing. It's a lifestyle. John Owen referred to it as mortification and vivification. We're putting to death and we're being made alive again and again and again. We live in that dynamic. Marilyn? Um, something I've struggled with is, um, and I, I think that you, this may have been where you're coming from with the whole idea of this um, eschatological focus. Um, Elsewhere in the letters, um, he at some point says, maybe more than once, something to the effect of, be ye therefore perfect. And that's always troubled me because I don't think that that's possible. But are you? do you think he, that sort of statement was made in terms of the fact that we're already, we already, have, we're already in that age? I think you're tapping into something very important. I mean, if we use a technical term, the term I'd want to use is, Paul has an eschatological realism. In other words, our union with Christ, our being raised with Christ, Paul's favorite phrase is in Christ, in him. That notion for Paul, there's a lot going on with his claim there, and we have to look at it contextually, but that notion for Paul is a realistic claim about our fundamental identity now and in the future. So that when he's calling us to walk into that, think about how he does it again and again. He moves from the indicatives into the imperatives. This is what the gospel is. This is who you are. Now, walk into what you already are. Be who you already are. That's the claim. Um, so yes, it is that kind of realism that I think Paul is, is speaking of here. We are that fundamentally and really. Next week, we'll see a showdown, or actually in two weeks, we'll see a showdown between Peter and Paul. That'll be fun. Um, and, uh, and then we'll keep pressing on in this letter. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're not done? Can you speak to oh. in looking at life together that you recommend to the small groups, uh -huh. that idea of sinners being grateful for being stuck with sinners and what we are to look for as sinners and the other sinners? Yes. Um, well, David, that was a curveball there, brother. Um, let's table it. Because I think that this is an important question. Because by the end of the time that we are together in Galatians, when we get to chapter 6, Paul is going to start talking about fulfilling the law of Christ. We're going to need to wrestle with what that means 
And what is fulfilling the law of Christ? It's bearing one another's burdens. It's living in community with one another. It's the necessity of rubbing shoulders with sinners. And I think that was Bonhoeffer's larger point, that our Christian community is not an ideal that we need to kind of manufacture. I think that's at the core of Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. It's a reality that we walk into. This gets, I think, to Marilyn's question. It's a reality. And that reality is something that exists because of our union with Christ, but we also still live in the overlap of the ages, so that means it's not always going to be fun. I mean, my wife and I have said this multiple times, and you agree, those of you who've been in this Christian world long enough, I mean, the blessing of Christian community is community, and the curse is the same thing. Um, why? Because some of you have to put up with me, and they have to put up with you, David, right? I mean, this, is, this can get, get tricky. Oh, don't, don't be too quick there. I heard that. Um, but this is part of the joy um, and the difficulty of, of living life along the way together. And I think that's, that's key. Yeah. All right, next week.